What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny of Deljabar. Danny, how are you? Happy birthday, my friend. Thank you, man. I'm chilling as per usual. One year older, one more revolution around the sun. You know how it goes. Oh, yeah. Getting older. Time is passing, and Danny gets older day by day. We all get older day by day. So we were going to do an episode on Columbus Day. Because this episode would be released, well, either Sunday and Monday for some people. But Danny didn't want to do a Columbus Day episode because according to Danny, Columbus, Christopher Columbus, the daddy of our nation, the daddy of America, was a genocidal maniac, right? Well, I mean, you know. You, you, you know say racist that. genocide day. He, he's, a, he's a rapist and a murderer and a, and a charlatan and a liar. And he didn't find shit. And he, every, all of his achievements were done by accident or by violence. So, yeah, I don't necessarily Listen like to him. how un-American this guy sounds, everyone. Un-American? He didn't even go to the United States. He's our nation's daddy. No, he you're, isn't. You know what you are? You're an anti-Italian-ite. Okay. And that's what you sure. are. Anti-Italian. <laughs> hey, what hey. do you mean there's no Columbus Day? What the fuck? Um, hey, I mean, I'm I'm down to do like a Leif Erikson day show. Like Vikings came over here. Well, hey, Ital- no one had it harder than the Italians. Hey, oh, <laughs> we're a bunch of laborers, and they would take your fucking. Hey. I'm marrying into an Italian family, by the way. You got to watch the Sopranos episode of uh, Tony's crew are upset about uh, a bunch of Native Americans protesting a Christopher Columbus Day parade. Uh-huh. It's very funny. So, like, if, if, if we were at least honest about Columbus's history, I'd be, I'd be okay with, like, taking him as, a, as an explorer and as, like, a, an interesting figure in, in, in history that definitely helped to shape, uh, you know, our, our, our time now. But um, the way that we, the way that at least the U.S. teaches about Columbus is just straight wrong. And it doesn't acknowledge the nasty shit that he did. So, you know, it, it just seems disingenuous. That's all for me, you know. Like I'm not, I'm not super up in arms about it. Like I, can, I don't really care that much. But you know, we should be honest about what, you know, the the real history of Christopher Columbus. Just be honest about it, so we can have a conversation about it, you know. And we can. And that's we can what we're going to be doing. Yeah, we can respect him for his achievements, but we also have to be like honest about the shit that he did that was fucked up. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing mm-hmm. an honest conversation about. Um, Something else that's completely unrelated. Um, so, yeah, I guess this is kind of a weird segue, but today's episode, if you guessed by the title of the show, it's not going to be about Christopher Columbus. It's going to be about the CIA. And 
Um, I guess the reason why we're doing this episode is, um, well, we've been doing a lot of stuff on the Cold War lately, and the CIA, its origin story comes from World War II and the Cold War, so we figured, why not talk about this as an episode, because it's an interesting history, uh, the origins and the early history of the CIA, so. Yep, and we're also going to talk a little bit about you know, uh, at the towards the end of the show, I want to talk a little bit about maybe some good things that the CIA has done because, you know, kind of spoiler alert, we're not going to be very friendly towards the CIA uh, in this because we're going to be open and honest about what, you know, what they've done. Um, and I don't think that's a surprise if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know, the CIA kind of, you know, runs some pretty nefarious things. Um, but I actually made a, a genuine effort to try and find some good stuff to talk about too. So, uh, We'll we'll try that out at the end. <laughs> you sound like you're in the CIA. <laughs> Maybe I am. <laughs> Let's take some time to talk about the good things. Um, all right, so um, I guess the, where you start the story, the logical place is uh, before World War II. So, um, I mean, we've always had spies. We've had spies throughout human right. history. Every single government in the world has had intelligence organizations and things like that, but... For mm-hmm. most of human history, it's been kind of an amateur affair. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. So prior to World War II, the U.S. had a handful of departments within the branches of the armed forces and the State Department that gathered intelligence. But there was really no coordination among these departments. So there was no centralized bureaucratic hub. In fact, these departments often competed with each other. That's right. So the U.S.'s first like large-scale espionage agency basically started... You know, right, right during World War II, after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, and uh, according to some declassified government documents, our unpreparedness for that attack was probably the root cause for that agency's creation. Yeah. So, um, in 1941, FDR established uh, with the consultation of William J. Donovan. So it's, it starts out as the Office of the Coordinator of Information, and then that eventually evolves into the OSS. So the Office of Strategic Services, which um, I'm sure some of you guys have probably heard of. And mm-hmm. uh, that was only that was a year later into the war. And, and one of the reasons, like you said, was, you know, they saw the need to create a centralized intelligence bureau to avoid situations like Pearl Harbor. Right, right. I mean, there, there were pretty much warnings that the attack was going to happen, but there wasn't a loud enough voice that said the Japanese were going to attack. And you know, we had a lot of like disjointed information, you know, the naval intelligence, which is the Navy's espionage wing, they had their own little thing going. Uh, Apparently, they cracked some code uh, from the Japanese government and military and and got some information about, you know, an impending attack. Also, the FBI, who was around for a bit, um, was sensing some weird shit on the ground. Um, But the problem that we had wasn't necessarily that we were totally unaware. It was that we had really poor organization of that information and really poor analyzation of that information. So different departments had, you know, a, a part of the story, but not the full picture or or even like a way to piece together the whole puzzle. You know what that sounds like, right? What? <laughs> it sounds like 9-11. Yeah. Or the justification of creating the national security state. Kind um, of. Where the CIA and the FBI, they both had... Um, they were on different tracks and they weren't mm-hmm. communicating and they weren't communicating sources and, and uh, information and intelligence with each other. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the main pretexts of creating a, the, you know, the, the national security state that we have today, the right. centralized hub that connects everything. That's right. Um, but 
when it first started the the OSS there was two divisions of the OSS so there was strategic services operations and then intelligence services so strategic services operations it was basically it was modeled after the British Empire spy network right so what they would do is that they would drop small teams of officers to train and assist resistance fighters and they would also engage in things like sabotage and um you know fucking things up like um um inglorious bastard style stuff yep. you know what i mean like mm-hmm. going beyond blowing shit up lines and... and just causing chaos and craziness uh, right. among the enemies um now during world war ii there were rivalries between the oss and other departments for example general macarthur he banned the oss from operating in the pacific because general macarthur had his own guys doing that type of stuff right um he didn't trust an outside agency and then J. Edgar Hoover as well, he prevented them from operating in South America because at the time, the FBI, South America was within their jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want the OSS over there and fucking things up for him. So as World War II comes to an end, William Donovan, he wanted to turn the OSS into a permanent organization. However... You know, within the armed forces, they wanted to keep their own intelligence outfits. Right. But, I mean, the OSS was pretty big at the time, too. You know, it had been growing quite a bit. At its height, it had like 12,000 staffers in D.C. Um, and, and like you were saying before, they, they engaged in a bunch of different tactics. And they had something like 500 field agents in, in German-occupied France during World War II. So, like, they were, you know, they were a force to be reckoned with. You know, they weren't like a small outfit at all. Well, what Truman said is that... He wasn't a fan of uh, the OSS either, or at least the OSS in peacetime. So what he called it, or what he just kind of labeled any type of permanent intelligence apparatus like uh, the OSS, mm-hmm. he called it a um, an American Gestapo. Mm-hmm. So he was scared that it was going to become some type of secret police. So what his vision was is that he created the Central Intelligence Group, so the CIG, but the CIG was just like this stupid department. Like it really had basically no power. Like it had no budget. And um, it was just the, the CIG was actually just created with like Truman friends. Like it was like it almost ended up being a position where he just put his allies in, in government mm-hmm. uh, to like a good paying job. So it became, it, it, there was a lot of scrutiny over it. Um, but the National Security Act. So the National Security Act. In 1947, um, was probably one of the or the largest reconstruction of the U.S. military ever. So that creates the position of Secretary of Defense. It turns the Air Force into a separate branch of the military, and um, it creates a National Security Council under the office of the president. And, you know, these all, all these things, like, you know, turning the Air Force into a separate branch of the military, um, these were, de- like, heavily debated issues. Like, these weren't easy decisions or easy moves. So the CIA, which is also the creation of this, the, uh, the CIA, which is also in the National Security Act in 1947, it goes under the radar. And that's mainly due to the efforts of, uh, of Alan Dulles and Hoyt Vandenberg and you know, Alan Dulles is somebody that probably people have heard of before. The Dulles brothers, they're kind of famous, notorious people throughout American history. Are they the ones um, that Washington's airport's named after? Yeah. So 
the I'll get into it. So the early leadership of the CIA were Eastern establishment lawyers and they represented corporations and Wall Street banks. So you ever hear of the Eastern establishment, the term Eastern establishment? Yeah, yeah, totally. So the Eastern establishment was basically the liberal wing of the Republican Party at the time. So they were the Rockefeller Republicans. They were the New York City Republicans who um, all went to Ivy League schools and worked on Wall Street. So they're kind of like the Northeastern, like, snooty, um, you know, Hoyt Vandenberg and Alan Dulles. Like, they all were all, like, skull we bald bones types. <laughs> What's that? We are Republicans. <laughs> yeah, like, they were the um, the people, the old money types, Wall mm-hmm. Street money, finance, families, right. um, that had enormous amounts of power. The other half of the Republican Party was more of the um, kind of libertarian wing, um, with Robert Taft, who who were based out of the Midwest, um, mm-hmm. you know, but the the Rockefeller wing ends up winning out, you know, with the election with Eisenhower. But um, Alan Dulles, who served as director from 1953 to 1961, he was a senior partner of Sullivan and Cromwell, along with his brother John Dulles, and John Dulles ends up serving as Eisenhower's Secretary of State. Now Sullivan and Cromwell is one of the most powerful law firms in the entire world. So they're a very, very powerful Wall Street law firm. Um, and they, and they uh, you know, their clients are major corporations um, along with banks. So during World War II, if you want to go through Alan Dulles' history, he was an operative of the OSS. And he acted pretty much as how a future CIA case officer would by building a portfolio of assets from war refugees and, um, you know, uh, talking to disinfected Germans and disinfected mm-hmm. soldiers and, you know, just building kind of like internal resentment. He was based out of Switzerland. Right. And this kind of brings us to the question, you know, what does the CIA do? Like, what is what is the purpose of the CIA? What What is their, uh, what are they allowed to do? Um, so... The National Security Act, and I have this up right here. The National Security Act, it gave the CIA um, the task of advising the president. And I'm going to quote right from it. On matters concerning such intelligence acti- activities of the government departments and agencies as relate to national security. It also gave it the power to perform such other functions and duties related to intelligence affecting the national security as the National Security Council may time from time to time direct. So it's what this broad. does. <laughs> pretty broadly worded very there. Broad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, it, this is intentionally very broadly worded. So this gives uh, legal authority to the CIA to engage in covert operations and um Covert operations is actually in the National Security. Well, it's not in the actual National Security Act, but according to the NSC 10-2, so this is the National Security Council Directive on Office of Special Projects, covert operations is very clearly defined. 
So uh, covert operations are understood to be all activities which are conducted or sponsored by this government against hostile foreign states or groups in, a support, in support of friendly foreign states or groups, but which are so planned and executed that any U.S. government responsibility for them is not evident to unauthorized persons and that if uncovered, the U.S. government can plausibly disclaim any responsibility for them. Hmm. 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 Interesting. Specifically, such operations shall include any covert activities related to propaganda, economic warfare, preventive direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition and evacuation measures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas and refugee liberation groups in support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. Such operations shall not include armed conflict by recognized military forces, espionage, counter-espionage, and cover and deception for military operations. That's interesting. So so let me unpack that real fast because I want to make sure I understood it. It's saying that that they're good to do propaganda, economic warfare, sabotage, you know, subverting hostile states, uh supporting resistance movements uh guerrillas and and liberation groups but they're not supposed to have armed conflict with like a recognized military so they can't like go to war with some foreign military um espionage or counter espionage so they're not supposed to do espionage that's kind of weird uh and uh yeah that I, i don't really know what to make of that it's kind of confusing. I think it's intentionally confusing, but I have something better said that um so there was a leaked transcript from Richard Bissell talking to the Council on Foreign Relations in uh, 1968. Mm-hmm. And he explains um what exactly it is the CIA does. What do you do here? You ever see Office Space? Mm-hmm. Now tell me, what do you do here? Or, uh, I Rick work and Morty. with the customers. I'm a people person. <laughs> or like Rick and Morty, the, the robot that uh, you know slices butter for him. Michael Bolton. What is my purpose? <laughs> What's your favorite Michael Bolton song? <laughs> um, he sucks. I can just go on. Um, all right. So uh, Richard Bissell, he's a guy who is, uh, you know, he helped uh, plan such wonderful projects such as the U-2 spy plane and also the Bay of Pigs invasion. Oh, great. Yeah, but there's a transcript of him talking to the Council on Foreign Relations that talk about what covert actions are and what they were Mm -hmm. and what they were, in his words, to influence the internal affairs of other nations. The technique is essentially that of penetration, including penetrations of the sort which horrify classicists of covert operations with a disregard for the standards and agent recruitment rules. The CIA employees engaged in covert operations are called case officers, and their job is to go into countries and recruit people to work on behalf of the CIA. So this could mean... Penetration. Penetration. So this can mean... So penetration means, in their terms, it means things like financing political parties, planting newspaper stories, um, carrying out military coups, ultimately changing the course of a government's trajectory mm-hmm. intervening in governments what they're what they're doing um, 
usually in most countries, there's a small number of case officers working for the CIA in a country. Often it's just like one or two people. And they're working for either the government or they're, they're representing some dummy front CIA company. And, you know, there's a lot of examples of, of CIA dummy companies. Air America Airline was a CIA front. Yep. During the Vietnam War in the 50s and 60s, Air America was transporting weapons and drugs back and forth to America and, and uh, Southeast Asia. But it was a legitimate, legitimately profitable airline. Right. They were actually flying people and, around. <laughs> yeah, they were flying people around. They couldn't just be like, this is a plane full of weapons. No, it was a passenger plane filled with weapons. Which, um, by the but way, it was is, is... also a successful enterprise because we're not talking about, like, we're, the people who are in the CIA are like, you know, Harvard-educated uh, lawyers and businessmen, a lot of them. Right. So they knew how to run, run businesses. Um, it's funny because— Radio that... Swan. Oh, let's go ahead. No, I was just going to—it's funny because that, that that airline was actually incredibly successful, and it's, it's weird that, you know, that the CIA could get an airline right, but— <laughs> everything else not so much <laughs> i know when they're delving into to private enterprise i guess their individual uh business prowess was just successful um but we'll honestly i want to do an episode in the future that goes deeper into air america and some of the airlines that the cia started because there's like there's probably the number one type of company or dummy company that they did start obviously for the reason of transporting th- transporting things covertly but sure. also media companies, um, Radio Swan is a famous case. There's a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, broadcasting channels that were CIA fronts. You had an example that you were telling. Yeah, me there was Crypto about. AG, uh, um, yeah. which was a like a uh, an encoding company, and they they're. I want to talk a little bit more about them later, but uh, they actually ended up purchasing this company. It was a pretty profitable one as well, and and it, its its clients were like governments and militaries and like other entities that were looking to like encrypt their and code their you know um communications um but they ended up buying that and it was kind of successful i'll talk about more about that later though we should do we should do episodes you know how like we were talking about doing a series on how countries get their nukes we should do one on cia front companies (laughs) like what this company if you guys are interested in that we'll definitely do it because that's an interesting topic but assets so i want to go into what an asset is now um people who are recruited into the cia are called assets so who are some assets that we know about throughout history hmm. let's find out i mean there's a lot of cia assets C- cia assets that the shah of iran was a cia asset Saddam Hussein was a CIA asset. Osama bin Laden at one time was a CIA asset. That's right. Pretty mm-hmm. much everyone involved in the 93 World Trade Center bombing was a CIA asset. Pretty much everyone who is in the government, or, or excuse me, was in the government in Afghanistan before it <laughs> fell to uh, the Taliban, were CIA assets. Um, uh, yeah. Khalifa Haftar was a CIA is a CIA asset. Mm-hmm. So, um, so according to Bissell, this transcript 
For the larger and more sensitive interventions, the allies must have their own motivation. On the whole, the agency has been remarkably successful in finding instrumentalities with which and through which it can work in this fashion. Implied in the requirement for a pre-existing motivation is the corollary that an attempt to induce the local ally to follow a course he does not believe in will at least reduce his effectiveness and, and may destroy the whole operation. So I got further context from uh, a Victor Marchetti, and Victor Marchetti worked as a, a special assistant to the deputy director of the CIA. And um, what he calls assets are, or what he refers to assets um, are preferably individuals who believe in the same goals as the agency. At the very least, people who can be manipulated into belief in these goals. CIA case officers must be adept at convincing people that working for the agency is in their interest. And a good case officer normally will use whatever techniques are required to recruit a prospect. Appeals to patriotism and anti-communism can be reinforced with flattery or sweetened with money and power. Cruder methods involving blackmail and coercion may also be used, but are clearly less desirable. Hmm. So, um, if they can't get you... I mean, there's stories like, you know, 1950s of the CIA going over to uh, Nasser, the, the uh, colonel at the time, he was only a colonel at the time, but he becomes president of Egypt. Them just going and going in and just trying to bribe Middle Eastern governments, just like crudely doing it, and then them being thrown out, and then that resorts to blackmail, and then eventually to them trying to kind of uh, conspire to do some type of regime change. Depose um, them. Mm-hmm. Case officers, according to to Bissell, the central task is that is that of identifying potential indigenous allies, both individuals and organizations, making contact with them and establishing the fact of a community of interest. So um, each of these case officers, they'll, they could have hundreds of assets because, and I'll quote Bissell again, covert intervention is probably most effective in situations where a comprehensive effort is undertaken with a number of separate operations designed to support and complement one another and to have a, uh, a cumulatively a significant effect. Now, this is what makes this very interesting. Because case officers are the only ones who know which assets are in place, it's their judgment whether covert action can take place because it's impossible for us to know it's it's impossible you know there's a layer of like unknown or mystery between the assets the cia case officer his assets or his or her assets and then you know this the the head of the cia you know what i mean they also have like a level of um discretion um to them because they're they're the handlers right obviously they're reporting back to you know the CIA on their on their actions, but you know they kind of have to call audibles in the field, so they're kind of working independently almost as well. Exactly, and that's how you get like drug operations and things like that, mm-hmm. like completely illegal kind of organized crime going on. Um, so I'm going to quote uh, Marchetti again. This information is not shared with outsiders or even widely known inside the agency where agents are listed by code names, even in top secret documents. Thus, while the political decision to intervene must be made in the White House, it is the CIA itself 
through his clandestine services, which supplies the president and his advisors with much of the crucial information upon which their decisions to intervene is based. And this has caused problems, and this is how Marchetti puts it, even if the CIA's reputation for honesty and accurate assessment were unassailable, which it's not, there would still be a built-in conflict of interest in the system. The CIA draws upon the intervention plans. The CIA is the only agency with specific knowledge to evaluate the merits and the feasibility of those plans, and the CIA is the action arm which carries out the plans once they are approved. When the CIA has its assets in place, the inclination within the agency is to recommend their use. The form of intervention recommended will further reflect the type of assets which have been earlier recruited. Hmm. And then, um, so they're the judge, the jury, and the executioner for intervention, basically. Exactly. So, like, and then, like, they're working on putting this intervention in place already. Of course, they're going to, if they're also the intelligence arm as well. As you know, if there's two arms, the intelligence arm, and as well as the the covert actions arm, you know, they're responsible for briefing the president or briefing the higher ups. Of course, they're going to brief them on the courses of actions that they want. So there's the conflict of interest that's in place. Like, of course, Mm -hmm. like we can do that. You know, here's the intelligence you're seeing. We need to do this. We have it in place. Let us do it. so um, in this um, this transcript, I'm going back to Bissell's uh, leaked transcript to uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. So there's eight types of operations the CIA most commonly uses to intervene in countries. So um, there's one, political advice and counsel. That one's a nice one. Two, subsidies to an individual, bribing people. Yep. <laughs> Financial support and technical assistance. So, hacking to <laughs> aid, support of private organizations, funding businesses, covert propaganda, planting newspapers, bribing journalists, buying newspapers. <laughs> yeah, buying newspaper outlets, private training of individuals of exchange of persons. So, training prisoner rebels. swaps, training armies, economic op- economic operations. And paramilitary or political operations designed to overthrow or support a regime. I love that last one. It's just like so, all those things is like from one to seven listed are all just eight, right? Like they're they're the means to an end of eight, right? Like paramilitary or political operation. Those are all political operations designed to overthrow or support regimes, right? Because that's ultimately what they do. You know, they work on. This is sound, I'm going to sound like such a socialist right now. I'm not a socialist, by the way, if this is the first time you're listening. But um, the CIA is basically capitalism's shock troops. Mm-hmm. Global clap capitalism's shock troops. Yeah. Like they are fighting on behalf of, they're not fighting on behalf of like American interest or like the, the in, or, or not, or uh, the nation state, really. They're mm-hmm. fighting on behalf of corporate interests that have uh, international um, business stakes in different countries, like right. that's what and we'll they get. Are. It, we'll get into more of that later, but um, that that is there's that many many there's many examples where right. But, yeah, let's let's get into that later. But I'm going to continue talking about uh, case officers and and uh, why the CIA decides to intervene in countries that they do, or where are the fertile grounds of where they can operate, and the nations that become the fertile ground for CIA case officers are predominantly third world dictatorships 
And um, the reason why, according to uh, to Bissell, again, um, it's funny how all this stuff is in this transcript. Their governments are much less highly organized. There is less security consciousness, and there is an apt to be more actual or potential diffusion of power among parties, local localities, organizations, and individuals outside the central government. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. So it's just easier to operate as a CIA case officer in Afghanistan than it is to operate or, or Iran or they're basically or, bullies um, that are picking on the weak ones. Yeah. It's harder. It's, it's more difficult to operate in a, in a dysfunctional country than in a functioning country because there's, a, there's, le, there's less resentment to play on, play mm-hmm. off of, you know, if you have a dictatorship, that dictatorship will almost always be at somebody's, some group's expense. Right. You know, there may be, even if it's like a 60-40%, like 60% are in favor of the dictatorship or 70% are in favor of the dictatorship or the majority is in favor, it doesn't really matter. Usually it's like a plurality of people who are in favor of, of that type of strongman government or a coalition of minorities. It can really be either or. It's always going to be, when you have a totalitarian or authoritarian government, there's always going to be some group that is going it's going to be at the expense of some group right there which will be unhappy which will be gladly um take the support from outside actors and it just makes sense like we would do it mm-hmm. let's just say if we had like an oppressive government um a very oppressive government like just that actively discriminated against <laughs> um a certain class of people all right don't jump i know you're gonna jump in with like Oh wow! I am. <laughs> Let's just say there was like blatant, blatant, blatant uh, kleptocracy um, and um, chauvinism against a group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, we would probably accept accept the support of, of a, a foreign CIA, entity, a foreign entity. Right. It was kind of. I was actually going to bring up the question that got asked uh, when we went to uh, we went to Scott Horton's um, debate against Bill Crystal, which he did incredibly well uh, on. And the topic was about whether or not we should have intervened um, in you know the many foreign wars in the Middle East that we've had. 
Anyway, towards the end during the Q&A session, somebody came up and was like, oh, uh, let's just say the Australian government is like a, you know, oppressive authoritarian dictatorship. Uh, <laughs> and like, would, would you be in favor of like going and helping out the Australians? Um, it's kind of like that question uh, that popped up. And, you know, uh, it was actually kind of funny one, to be honest. Everybody was laughing about it because of, um, I think, the crowd. Bill Crystal was like, how dare you call Australian authoritarian? I know, I know. But I I think the crowd was, like, mostly libertarians and, and, like, kind of upset about, you know, the lockdowns in um, Australia because they've been pretty pretty strong on, on, on that front. So the question was a little bit loaded and for the audience, in my opinion. But it was just funny to see, like, Bill Crystal just writhe. (laughs) <laughs> uh, at the question so he squirmed in his seat yeah um you're like oh how dare you call australian authoritarian and then our friend our uh our pay our our uh patreon supporter because uh, we have some patreon supporters from australia was like in our in our uh, slack chat was like I resent that saying uh, australia is totalitarian it's authoritarian <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but all right, let's get back to this. Um, cause I I'm losing my train of thought. So the theory, um, so in the theory, this, the CIA does not get engaged in, um, any type of covert activity without the approval of the president and then the oversight of Congress. But the reality is there's practically no oversight over what the CIA does. Right. So, for example, in 1962, out of 550 projects, only 86 of them have been approved or reapproved by the president. And the reason why is because presidents don't want to put their signature on certain operations. And Congress rather not know what's going on. So this is what we call plausible deniability. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, conflicts of nations. <laughs> Great segue. <laughs> conflicts of nations. Um, all right, video games. What? What up, gamers? So, conflicts of nations, the free online PvP strategy game. It's a game where you take command of a modern battlefield and lead a country through war. Modern war. You engage in battles against real players. Real players like Danny Abdeljabar over here. Hey, Danny, have you finished taking over Outer Mongolia? Well, yeah, it's funny that you asked that. So I've been playing this for a couple of weeks now. And uh, it's interesting. This actually works with uh, our show here on uh, the CIA. But uh, I was playing as Mongolia, taking over most of the world, actually. Reigniting the Khan, you know, horde. And... Suddenly, I just got wrecked by Myanmar, of all people. I come to find out after, like, you know, talking some shit with him on, you know, in the game chat that he actually had uh, someone, uh, like a plant, in our coalition. Like, he sent one of his friends in his little group to join our coalition, and then he was feeding him all the information about where all my troops were, and then he destroyed me. So it was like a true you know, clandestine operation to subvert the the Mongol horde <laughs> from growing any farther. Oh, what uh, a bastard. You got to watch out for those mine Mars. I know, I know. But fun fact, I actually ended up joining them, and uh, I'm in like a WhatsApp oh. 
group chat with them and now i'm doing the same thing against other countries <laughs> okay you see conflicts of nations will also expand your online social life in addition to being a fun video game yep <laughs> um but you fight up to 128 other players in real time in games that literally take weeks to complete right mm-hmm mm-hmm because you, you've been on the same game for like since i last talked to you yep um over 100 beautifully modeled modern weapon systems such as tanks jets nuclear submarines Nuclear ballistic submarines, combat attack, attack helicopters, attack helicopter, stealth strike for infantry units, and many more. Terrifying weapons of mass destruction with lasting consequences on the population and the economy. Um, all these uh, topics that we need to discuss on our show. So if you like our show, this can be a great addition um, to, uh, to, get, to get that fixed. So declare war on your neighbors, but virtually... And uh, forge alliances with other players. You can play the game on PC and mobile, and you can download Conflicts of Nations World War Three on your mobile app. Conflicts of Nations World War Three on the App Store and Play Store, or you can play the web game at www.tv. Okay, back to the CIA. So um, let's get to. I want to talk about. Th- like the the mechanism, you know, like when did we start using this mechanism? Um, what's the timeline look like? So the first place the U.S. experimented with the new with this you know this new national security mechanism was in Italy. So in early 1948, U.S. leaders were scared that Western Europe was going to turn communist. And, um, you know, we did an episode on this a couple of weeks ago on the origins of the Cold War, but there were there was massive inflation all across Europe, and it was just causing people to join communist parties. So the U.S. pumped money into European countries to prevent them from turning communist, and, you know, their fear is that if these Western countries or would turn communist, that they would eventually align with the Soviet Union and they would lose Europe. So, along with the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, these are the two key components of, of the early Cold War. You know, the, the race for nuclear weapons along with, or the Soviets' race to get a nuclear weapon and them um, not having the bomb, along with the um, future of Europe and how that was going to align. Like, that's the, journey, that's the genesis of the early Cold War. Well... In Italy, a very well-organized, disciplined, and financed Italian Communist Party, the PCI, they allied with another socialist party, the PSI, the Italian Socialist Party, and they threatened to uh, sweep the, the Italian elections in 1948. So in response... The CIA funneled millions of dollars out of the Marshall Plan, and they did, the way they did this is that they um, they were they were funding the the, the Christian Democratic right wing socialist parties, and you know they were um, they were um, mobilizing this really big propaganda campaign against the Communist Socialist Coalition, and they would launder money through the bank accounts of American Italians who would donate the funds to like CIA front organizations. So 
um, the Christian Democrats, they end up winning the election. And, the same t- and at the same time, you know, uh, the U.S. gave Greece $300 million in aid in the Marshall Plan. Um, you know, there was a civil war in Greece at the time, but anti-communists end up winning, winning in uh, Greece as well. So these operations were successful. However, many of the first operations were not successful, especially in the case of Eastern Europe. Um, so a, a really good book on this subject and like the rise of the military industrial complex, um, the early cold war is a book called, uh, the war state by Mike Swanson. And I quoted a lot of this book in our episode about the cold war. And, uh, I pulled another passage from it on the CIA and some of the early failures. Frank Wisner now turned his attention to sending agents directly into Eastern Europe in order to gather intelligence and create sleeper cells that would sit and wait for potential sabotage orders. This mission became his obsession. He spent 12 hours a day, six days a week, funneling money and men, mostly displaced refugees from World War II into Eastern Europe. The job took over his life. He airdropped $5 million worth of ammunition, guns, and bombs into Poland. The idea was if that if World War III came, he would activate his agents and begin a guerrilla war behind Soviet lines. The CIA had clearly thought they could operate in Eastern Europe the way the OSS had operated and occupied Western Europe during the war. That was clearly impossible, remember CIA Henry Loomis. All the agents disappeared. Most of them were probably killed. It was a total disaster, and almost no one outside the CIA knew about it. Bill Coffin, who Wisner recruited from Yale to assist him in overseeing these operations, came to conclude that it was fundamentally a bad idea. We were quite naive about the use of American power. He left the CIA and became chaplain of Yale. Windsor tried the same thing in China and in North Korea and didn't work at, didn't work in Asia either. The Chinese bragged that they killed 101 agents and captured 111 more. 1,500 were sent to their death in North Korea. The CIA worked with a group of Chinese refugees in Okinawa to build a third force against China. They spent $50 million and, brought, and, and bought enough arms and ammo for 100,000 guerrillas. But the Chinese scammed them. Wisner's operations got to be so expensive that they dwarfed the rest of the CIA's budget. So this early um, version of the CIA is a very disorganized mess. Yeah, they succeed in basically Western Italy, but you know they, they bite off way more than they chew they can chew in, in Poland and and uh, in China, and they completely fail. The way that they were able to not disintegrate was through Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles would leak news of successful CIA operations to justify their existence. But most of what they were doing was just failing. So here's another quote from from Mike Swanson on specifically Wisner. So as for Wisner, fueled with constant stream of nicotine, coffee, and alcohol, he continued to run covert operations against the Soviets until he had a mental breakdown in 1957 and got shuttled off the care of a CIA psychiatrist. After receiving electroshock therapy, the CIA thought he was well enough to be sent home in semi-retirement, but he shot himself. The reason why I'm reading this is because it kind of segues into something else. A lot of CIA case officers deal with horrible drug addiction and horrible depression issues. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if it's the personality type. I I just don't know if it's the workload. But it's like a common thing. Maybe it's thing. just the access to all the drugs. <laughs> Maybe it's the access to all the drugs. 
but a lot of guys really do suffer from from uh, very serious mental health issues. Um, right. it's, I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist at all, but it certainly seems that Wisner was um, suffered some, from some type of uh, you know bipolar disorder or something like that. Now, let's think about some other notable failures on the intelligence side of things. So here are some major stains or taints on their record. So they failed to predict the North Korean invasion of South Korea. They failed to predict the communist win in China. Mm-hmm. Remember, I mean, remember, we weren't alive at this time. Hey, remember when, you know, they, uh, remember when they were Chiang back Kai-shek Chiang Kai-shek? had to flee China? No, I wasn't alive. <laughs> but it was like a shock. Everyone was like, who lost China? That was the question. Who lost China? Um, they also failed to predict the successful atomic bomb in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, the CIA, I mean, look, we weren't able to predict Afghanistan falling in a day. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we didn't. They just don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. They probably did. They just didn't tell Joe Biden. Oh, what happened? Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> I have to probably what it was like. Sure. Afghanistan. Um So Truman does get frustrated and he uh there's a change in personnel. So he appoints General Walter Bettel Smith as CIA director and, and he comes to clump uh clean things up. And he um General Walter Bettel Smith, he's actually Eisenhower's chief of staff. And he's, he's interesting enough, he's actually the guy the Nazis actually surrender to. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And what he discovered is, um, I'm quoting from Mike Swanson's book again, he discovered that the CIA had 400 people working on Truman's daily intelligence briefings and 90% of what they were putting together was nothing but rewritten State Department reports. Almost everything was worthless junk mm-hmm. and worthless filler. So they were just looking at, they were just rewriting shit. And saying, here's our intelligence. So they're just like copying and pasting shit. <laughs> yeah. Seems like. At least the things that they wanted on record. Mm-hmm. But the problem was he couldn't fire the people like Wisner. Obviously, he was undergoing very serious mental health challenges. But the reason why they couldn't fire these people is because they weren't writing down the real stuff. It was all in their heads. Mm-hmm. You know, something interesting is, um, you know, Soleimani and Iran. Right. And while right. we're on it about intelligence. I mean, he was basically in charge of their army, their intelligence, everything. Right. Um, the reason why I think that they killed Soleimani, um, why the Israelis wanted the U.S. to do it, because it was because of Israeli influence, is because they knew that this guy had all these alliances in his head. Right. Like, the, all, like a lot of these alliances between Iran yeah. and like different Shia, Shia groups um in iraq and all these different alliances with hezbollah they knew that a lot of this stuff was just like him these are alliances that he made and they were in his head he was kind of like otto von bismarck mm-hmm. in that way like you mm-hmm. know if you read about otto von bismarck he had all these alliances and shit in his head that no one really can get decipher the reasons why he had certain things set up and what the way they did like historians who specialize on that error like have real trouble deciphering his uh his intentions when it come came to like the early uh, diplomacy of like the German Empire and Prussia and stuff like that. Well, Soleimani is kind of like the modern was like the modern day Middle Eastern version of Otto von Bismarck. 
And that's why they killed him to erase all that memory of alliances and stuff. Well, the early CIA is the same way. Like a lot of that shit's just in their head. They don't have that stuff written down. It's a liability to have these things written down. But um, Bedell, being a military guy, didn't like these guys. He hated Dulles. He hated Wisner. He saw that they were slimy lawyers. They're like, he was. he's a rank-and-file guy. Like, you report to me. Give me, mm-hmm. you know, give me 50 if you don't do that. Get down, and, right. get down and give me push-ups. And you guys were like fucking weirdo, you know, drug-addicted losers who were just doing things in their own interest. And he saw them as these slimy guys. What they were actually planning... So, um, you know, we, we talk about Operation Ajax a lot. Just to give you kind of a brief rundown, in 1951, the Iranian parliament elected a nationalist prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. And this nationalist makes a big mistake. He nationalizes the British Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, a.k.a. BP. Therefore... The British wanted to overthrow him, and they wanted to put a a pro-business-friendly person in power. Prior to World War II, Iran was ruled by a king, but he was forced to abdicate by the British and the Soviets because he was seen as pro-Hitler. So the British, they let his son Shah Reza Pahlava come to power after the war, but Iran's parliament elected someone who was on the other side of British oil interests. So the British wanted to overthrow the prime minister and get the Shah to become the absolute ruler of Iran. Now, what's interesting about this is that Alan Dulles was friends with the Shah. So he represented him while he was a lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell. And Dulles, he also got the Shah connected with guys like Nelson Rockefeller and William Donovan. You know, he got him in with the American power elite, a.k.a. the Eastern Establishment. You know, the Rockefellers were instrumental in the Shah um, receiving cancer treatment in the United oh, States. the Shah. <laughs> the Shah. They were instrumental in right. him getting cancer treatment in the United States, which, um, which caused a lot of problems. But when um, Eisenhower came to power... Um, well, let me pull this back because Truman didn't actually like the idea of doing this because when they went over to Truman and said, hey, we have this idea, we're going to overthrow um, the government in Iran. Truman was like, we don't do this type of thing. America doesn't do this type of thing. But when Eisenhower came to power, his secretary of state was John Dulles, Alan Dulles's brother. Mm-hmm. So they get the green light. And the British, they were smart about this because they sold this to the U.S. as an intervention against communism. They said that, they told the United States that, hey, listen, it's not totally oil interest. Most of Dex are coming. We can't have that going on. So then they're like, oh, really? He's a commie? Maybe we'll do it then. But the CIA chief, the, the CIA station chief, he refused to take part in it. So he was replaced. Well, first of all, he predicted that the coup would cause Iranians to hate Americans in the long run, which he was absolutely correct in that prediction. 
one of the main reasons why we have a bad relationship with Iran is because of the resentment of the 1953 coup. Mm-hmm. So he is re- he is pr- uh, replaced by another guy that we've talked about a lot in the show, Kermit Roosevelt. Kermit, and, that's uh, our guy. Kermit Roosevelt is the son of Teddy Roosevelt. And I know what you're thinking. In the words of George Carlin, it's a club and you ain't in it. Hmm. It's all nepotism. Yep. It's all politically connected people who who run this country. And I like Kermit Roosevelt as a, as a historical figure. I kind of have very a soft spot for him. Yeah. I have a soft spot for him. I think he's a very interesting person. But, I mean, come on. Just the nepotism and it's just outrageous. It's palpable. So, yeah. Roosevelt arrives in Iran with several million dollars. And what he did is that he just bribed key structures of power in Iran to turn against um, uh, Mossadegh. And uh, so he's bribing the press, he's bribing generals, and he's bribing people to start riots and protest. Buying newspapers. Hey, guys, I'll give you 50 bucks if you go protest in the street against Mossadegh. Even um, Ayatollah Khomeini was part of the the anti-Mossadegh protest. He was one of these young men who was bribed. To uh, to march against, I don't know if he was bribed directly, but he was definitely part of the. Definitely got the, caught up in it. Yeah, he got he got caught up in the fervor, the anti Mossadegh fervor, because the way that they uh, painted Mossadegh, the way they got him out of power was that he was anti Islam. He was too nationalist and too communist, mm-hmm. and he was gonna like be really. Um, he was gonna be very against like conservative um, Islamic thought and stuff like that, and persecute those people. So that's how they empowered uh, the Shah of Iran. Who and Shah is basically in a a secular uh, king. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's an interesting turn in history. But yeah, it works out. The United States overthrows the uh, democratically elected Mossadegh, and that leads to the chain of events that uh, that have led to our dysfunctional relationship with Iran to this day. Um, but you know, there's a lot of other famous interventions during this time period. Probably the other very famous intervention is in Guatemala in 1954. And you know, that's due to the direct lobbying from the United Fruit Company. And, uh, you know, United Fruit Company was the client of John Dulles during his time at Sullivan and Cromwell. Go figure. And a fruit company. Go figure. So... It's wants to do regime change in Guatemala. I wonder why. <laughs> and um, because of nationalizing different property and, and, and farm rights and things like that. Because um, United Fruit Company was like the largest employer in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. But um, let's put a pin on that because I think this United Fruit Company and um, the coup in Guatemala warrant its own episode. I'll just say that if the government of Iran could be changed, why couldn't other governments be changed? And I think right. that's what was the uh, the mentality early on in the CIA. Yeah. Um, and maybe we can shift a little bit here. I, I know that this is probably totally out of order. There's so much more that we can keep talking about on the CIA's history. Uh, specifically, we, we kind of just ended around the, the late 50s. But, you know, so much more happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, um, and maybe we'll we'll come back and revisit 
uh, you know, some CIA operations over those times. But, you know, one thing that I wanted to do uh, for this show was kind of think about, you know, like, has the CIA done anything good? <laughs> uh, and I had to get pretty broad for this. And, and I know we aren't being very kind to the CIA on this show uh, for this episode or in general, uh, for good reason, of course. Um, yeah, I, I think... I think what you'll start to find is, you know, if you remember in the beginning of this show, we were talking about how the OSS, you know, their original charter and intention was gathering intel from across agencies and like analyzing it for strategic purposes, you know, uh, and what it seems like they've evolved into, uh, especially after, you know, uh, uh, its development and, and the really broad definitions of what they can't, can and can't go after legally. Um, they're kind of morphing into a, you know, spy ring black budget arms dealer drug dealer go-to for regime change around the world kind of organization and you know it, it doesn't look great um but i kind of wanted to find at least something you know, some kind of sliver of hope like something that they've done right you know or what benefits you know this institution that had provided us um and i i honestly want to try to avoid making a logical fallacy you know, where we just assume that, you know, oh, a bunch of bad things might have happened without CIA intervention, you know, because a lot of people do make that argument. And I think there's there's an inherent problem with that line of argumentation. Um, and I think the key to it is the fact that that no one no one often leaks covert documents of the good shit that, you know, these types of government agencies have done in the past. Like, like when was the last time you heard of like a Chelsea Manning or an Edwin Edward Snowden type character? Uh, that like comes out and leaks national security intelligence about I don't know something good like a like a thwarted terrorist plot or something like that right like all you ever all you ever hear about is like the bad shit and you know even who leaks that do... stuff I'm sorry you know who leaks that information who the CIA themselves the, the CIA themselves <laughs> yeah exactly but even when you do hear you don't about need a whistleblower but I mean even when you do like it it usually invo- when you find these good stories it usually involves some kind of fucked up methods like you know, either they're torturing somebody or they're doing some kind of illegal spying against like otherwise innocent Americans or like there's extradition killings, you know, um, which obviously make, you know, the positive part of stopping threats and and and, and this this story like much more problematic. But um, I still wanted to find some stuff. Right. Uh, spoiler alert. I didn't really find very much, um, but I found some things. Right. So something that they get that they got right. Uh, and I needed to uh, kind of expand the definition of good here, uh, so uh, just to find enough stuff to talk about. But I also found some weird shit. So good here is just going to be like, did they do a good job at what they intended to do, and did it not cost us a bunch of money or a bunch of lives, um, or did they unintentionally do something that benefits people all over the world? Um, even if they were doing those things to like subvert other countries or like other peoples. Uh, so I, I had to keep this as broad as possible. Um, but I think this should, should be pretty fun. Uh, and then, you know, you can ask me questions about it, Henry, but, um, the first one, uh, is kind of like a little bit later in, in time. Uh, so we stopped at 56. So about 11 years later, uh, 67, uh, there was a, there was a war in Israel, right? Have you heard of that one, Henry? <laughs> No, I never heard of that war. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about it extensively. So, uh, 
Okay, so this is an example I found for what I feel like, you know, is like the CIA's real charter, or at least what they should have been doing, uh, which is intelligence gathering and analysis, right? Um, and so I got this article from the brookings.edu. Um, which is in, basically a CIA organization. Exa- exactly. So I, I definitely want to make that part clear. Like I had to find, you know, positive it's a, shit. a very pro-national security state yeah. CIA organization. It's a very hawkish uh, neoliberal internationalist organization that uh-huh. is basically uh-huh. a f- mouthpiece for this for the CIA. Yep, <laughs> very very clear on that point. Yep, um, but you know it I it was interesting and you know take it with a grain of salt. But um, here's some interesting stuff that we, that I learned from it. Um, so in the lead up to the '67 war in Israel, um, which as you know was uh, war between uh, Israel and like everyone else around them, all of their neighbors. Um, and uh, the CIA's Office of uh, Current Intelligence, the OCI, they basically created a task force to monitor the situation between Israel and its neighbors. Um, and the day after Egypt ends up closing the uh, Straits of Tehran, that was on May 23rd in that same year, uh, President Johnson asked Richard Helms, uh, who is the director of central intelligence, uh, to put together like, a, like an immediate assessment on you know, what would the outcome of the war be like. Uh, And he actually came through with it in just a couple hours. Um, I don't know if this is more, you know, uh, talking mouthpiece. I don't know if it only took a couple hours or what, but this is how the story goes. But anyway, Helps comes back to Johnson with this report that stated pretty clearly that Israel could probably take on all the Arabs, no problem, like any combination of them. Uh, He also noted that they could probably even do an offensive and grab more land. And the main reason why they came to this conclusion was Israel's air superiority like they believe that they had the you know the 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 edge militarily because they had just so much better air um, like uh, warplanes, um, and so two days later, Israel comes to Johnson, and their government provides uh, our government with uh, their own assessment of the situation. And it was totally different. Um, they claimed to be in grave danger. Uh, I think they were like inflating the Egyptian military power. I think it's not totally clear why they came to that conclusion. I guess it could have been a combination of a few different things. So either Israel had some shit intelligence, maybe Israel had no confidence in their own military strength. You know, maybe Israel was trying to persuade the U.S. to get involved, which is probably pretty likely. Um, All we know is that by the end of the 67 war, like Israel won real big and no surprise, thanks to their air superiority. Um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like after the war ended, like about two months later, you know, these intelligence communities produces like, uh, like an assessment of what happened. So half of Egypt's thousand tanks were destroyed. Um, two thirds of its air force was destroyed. The Jordanian air force was totally annihilated. Uh, two thirds of its, uh, 200 tanks were lost. Syrians had lost most of their air force. Israel had lost less than a hundred of their own uh, like 1,100 tanks and only 24 out of 450 jet pilots. Uh, Arab casualties were 10 times more than Israeli ones. So they won real big, just like Helms said, just like in his report. And as a result, Helms was pretty vindicated and he got all buddy-buddy with Johnson after that. They would like meet for lunch and shit and he would like p- pick his brain about like what he should do and in, in other uh, issues. But, you know, I think his... If we're being generous here and we're saying that, you know, this is in a total revisionist history and that it's not a total lie, uh, then this would 
count, I think, as a good thing, right? He his assessment kept us out of out of the conflict, with the exception of that one boat incident. Um, so win for the CIA there, I guess. What do you think? Well, they're intel. They were acting. No, I agree. I agree. They were performing how they should have performed. As right. you know, when the Israelis were like, "Oh, we're going to be conquered by our Arab neighbors. We need all this stuff. We're gra- we're greatly out outgunned, um, yeah. outarmed." Um, then yeah, I agree that they definitely cr- provided the correct intelligence that the Israelis were going to destroy them. Like the Israelis just had way better air force and mm-hmm. they were preemptively going to attack them as well mm-hmm. and destroy their air force. So there was no need to uh, intervene in that or to send troops there and which right. probably would have caused things to be a lot worse, most right. likely. Definitely. It would have prolonged I mean, come on. Sure. I mean, the, the, the Israelis won in, in, in an hour. They won in like minutes that war. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. like a... It wasn't a six-day war. It was a, it was a war. It was a six-minute war. Like they won as soon as they destroyed the. As uh, soon as they started. As soon as as soon as the war began. Hmm. Um. I want to talk about another one. Um. So this is a little later on, in 1970. So this is has to do with um, crypto AG, which I was talking about before. Um, so in the 70s, uh, the um, American Central Intelligence Agency, obviously the CA, we partnered up with um, the Bundes Nachrichtdienst, the BND, which is the German, uh, the West German Intelligence Agency. And, you know, we, we secretly purchased a Swiss coding machine ma- manufacturer in there called Nachrichtendienst. The Bundesnachrichtendienst. Bundesnachrichtendienst. Oh, I'm not even going to try. I'm not even <laughs> going to attempt it again. It's a really People, long word. Yeah, the number it's all one, one word, by the way. <laughs> criticism that I get on this podcast is like, you suck at pronouncing things. Um, anyway. But I'll just so call them the BND. The BND is fine, right? Um, so they're like the, the German CIA, the West German CIA. And uh, they bought this, they bought Crypto AG. And like I said, they're a, they're, they were a Swiss... Uh, coding machine manufacturers so they made coding machines and uh you know they they were one of the biggest you know uh, companies in this particular space you know in this market and um they they were in, their customers were governments and militaries and and things like that and and basically what what this purchase did was it gave the US and the West German intelligence agencies a lot of access to uh, huge amounts of classified information um and it had an impact on a lot of significant events during the Cold War. Um, so, uh, and to highlight this, it, some people that were customers of Crypto AG uh, were over 60 countries worldwide. Uh, some of them included e- uh, Argentina, Egypt, Greece, India, Italy, Iran, Libya. Um, all were using their their systems. And uh, the CIA was basically able to put in a backdoor that allowed them to get intel from those countries through these machines, which is crazy. Um, and so there were, uh, and there's one article I was reading it in, in Warwick, uh, the, they were talking about a, a bunch of different um, events that were affected by the, you know, information that was gathered through crypto AG, uh, including things like the Suez Canal crisis, uh, the Camp David peace accords, the Iranian hostage crisis, and the uh, Berlin discotheque bombings. Apparently, they got intel on all of them, 
uh, and how it's it's kind of hard to tell the full impact of of the intel that they got uh, on these events, but I think it's easy to imagine that it that it helped a little bit to know some secret information about the shit that was going on during those very major events. Um, but again, I don't want to make the the fallacy of, of assuming that it would have been worse if we didn't know, uh, because that's kind of impossible to tell. Um, but it's also important to note here, and this is kind of interesting. Uh, the, the Germans took a leading role in this operation. So, you know, you always hear about the U.S. and the U.K. spying organizations like CIA and MI6 and shit like that. Um, but but no one ever talks about the Germans' involvement, and they kind of they kind of rocked it for this one. Um, and they've continued since then. So anyway, in, in any case, win for the CIA again, right? Here's a way where we could just kind of gain access to a bunch of countries' intelligence and use it to our advantage without, like, killing a bunch of people to do it, right? So I, I guess this is kind of a win, right? Uh, I mean... I don't think that the U.S. should be involved in any of these countries anyway. No, so, no. But their, the whole point is of them, the, their whole charter is to get intel on friendly and adversary adversary nations and and no sure sure why not for the sake of for the sake of uh devil's advocate yeah or for the (laughs) sake of your you playing devil's advocate yeah sure that's kind of a win okay okay i'm gonna stretch a little bit on this next one um so this one's called operation paperclip pretty famous right i think a lot of people probably already know about this but it was a cia program to recruit german scientists um, Nazi German scientists with the intention of bringing them over to the U.S. to do like science and stuff. Um, so in '45, Truman ordered uh, that this uh, plan uh, be executed, but on a specific condition, and that was that uh, we had to exclude people to have been found uh, to have been a member of the Nazi Party. But that's kind of impossible because uh, that would have excluded almost every German scientist. So the CIA ends up whitewashing all of the public profiles of these German scientists and basically make it made it so that they can bring them over. So yeah, they're bringing Nazis over, and they they um, they brought they ended up bringing over about sixteen hundred scientists, and they all legally migrated to the U.S. under this. Um, Werner von Braun wasn't a Nazi. Come on. Well, I want to talk about Werner in a second. Hold on, don't don't get ahead of yourself. But um. But the scientists they brought over obviously helped um, to develop ballistic missiles and the atomic bomb, uh, and that was a success. Uh, whether it was a good thing is up for debate, but they certainly did pull it off. Um, and then let's talk about Werner for a moment, right? He was the leading Nazi rocket scientist working on the V-2 rocket, um, and he obviously helped us with our ballistic missiles, but very notably, he did basically build up our entire space program. And space is cool and super important. So I kind of count this as a valuable contribution from the CIA, despite the fact that they had to use Nazis to get it done. What do you think? You're going to disagree with me. Okay. Space is cool and all, but I don't get it. I don't get the point of spending so much money to, to go to the moon. Well, it's uh, of strategic importance for us to have satellites to spy on everybody. So, at the very least, there's that. 
No, I agree with that. With the satellites, yes. Um, Can't have satellites without a space program. So, you know, there you go. But, I mean, we could have developed... I think that the U.S. would have developed that technology without without, um, Without Werner Werner von Braun. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. He was basically, like, the guy for this. He was like the the foremost rocket science in the rocket scientist in the world. So the CIA um, whitewashing the the uh, history of being part of the Nazi party, yeah, so, so that, that they, they would they, so they can contribute in in uh, American scienti- scientific achievements. That's right, right. So like positive. people like Werner, they they just basically whitewashed him a little. They were like, yeah, he was a Nazi, but like not that much of a Nazi. He was just a scientist, right? Um, he was a Nazi. Let's be real. He was used by the Nazi party. He was. Yeah. He was like that was the story that they painted for him. You know? Yeah. Um, he, he's a problematic guy, but he's definitely very interesting and very intelligent. Um, and definitely instrumental. Did, was, in was the CIA involved in, in all the, the guys from Japan who, uh, were like crossing diseases and, um, in unit, uh, 731. I forgot the I unit, know. the, you know, the camp. Yeah, no, I, I know what you're talking about. I'm just not had. sure. I'm not sure. Maybe because all those guys, all those guys were brought to America, and they were they were uh, doing horrific crimes against Chinese, like against POWs, yep. and yep. captured people. They would they would like freeze. They would do like hypothermia tests, and they would do. They were human lab rats. Yeah, that yeah were. Um, going under undergoing horrific experiments it's uh it's pretty well i mean the cia definitely does some horrific experiments and i'll talk about them in in a second but here's here the next couple of ones that he's going to be fucking weird so just hold on to your you know shorts for this one all right so have you ever heard of the stargate project i have not okay so this one's very weird apparently the government and the military for years were engaged in an operation to use psychics to spy on our enemies using ESP or extra sensory perception. They called it remote viewing. It's fucking weird. They were trying to use fucking Miss Cleo to figure out what the Soviets were doing. So like in um like the little boy had in the shining? Kind of. Kind of. But apparently this was an actual thing. And, you know, there were some researchers that basically concluded that these these telepathic people were 80% wrong. <laughs> Which is pretty interesting that they got it right 20% of the time. I would have expected that number to be much smaller. But still, 80% wrong is not at all reliable or actionable. So the CIA ends up canceling the project forever in 1995. And it was the CIA who decided to cancel it, even though they weren't the one, the progenitors of the project. So, uh, good on the CIA for recognizing this as a waste of money. I think we're grasping at straws right here. A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Just kind of wanted to talk about it anyway. Sorry. Okay, they had the foresight to say that hiring the psychic club <laughs> was a bad idea. Wow, yeah. great on them. <laughs> what an achievement by the CIA. They really eliminated an extra department that we didn't need. Imagine if we had a department of psychics. Um, in the we might still have one. The State Department. We might still have one under the like. That was another team. agency that we had. Yeah. The yeah. department of uh, psych psycho psych, psychic analysis. 
This the, department is... No, they call it something boring, like the Department of Remote Viewing. Remote Viewing. Mm-hmm. That's where our psychics come from. Right. Imagine... That's like every single like show. Like I've seen TV shows or science fiction shows where there'll be like some evil psychic person or like some young person who's like using their psychic powers for for uh, for wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. They don't understand their powers or they haven't developed the moral compass yet to right. use their um, natural supernatural abilities in a positive way. Right. And then what always happens at the end is that the government finds them and they're like, "Oh, don't worry, we'll teach you how to harness this," and they bring them to like a government. Uh, spy school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember watching like a couple of renditions of that storyline on different shows, but mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about. You've seen that trope before, where they take totally. the psychic and they put them in government spy school. Well, talking about um, the government and mind shit, uh, there's another one, uh, Operation Midnight Climax, which is also related to MK Ultra. That's an operation you've never done before. <laughs> Midnight <laughs> Climax. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Anyway, this this was initiated by. Okay, so this is an example of something where the CIA did something stupid, right? So they they created the problem, but then they fixed the problem, right? So really, really grasping for straws here. But they they created this program of exploring the possibility of mind control using the use of drugs like LSD. And the researchers there wanted to find out if LSD, you know, did stuff. Like, what were the effects on people? Uh, and they used involuntary users. Uh, so they would straight up just drug a bunch of, like, Americans and Canadians, just randomly pick them up and give them drugs and then, like, study them and then let them go. It was kind of like a UFO abductions, which now I'm thinking about it, I, I imagine that a number of UFO abduction um, cases... Uh, reported UFO abductions are probably just the CIA picking you up and giving you LSD. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder uh, if there's an invest, any type of reporting on that. Yeah, I don't know. Or you, like at least conspiracy theorizing on the internet about, oh, that was, I guess there was, I guess for people who are more into aliens and stuff like that or conspiracy theories, I'm sure there's some, there's some shit on some connection. that. They were also you using know, LSD. Those guys food. believe it. Those people who who've been abducted by aliens, who say they've been mm-hmm. abducted abducted by aliens, right? They really seem to believe that they are abducted. No, they by truly aliens. do. No, they truly do. Every every pe- like a lot of these people. Some of them are fucking liars, but a lot of the people that are like legit, you know, they'll they'll go through all kinds of tests. They'll go through like you know polygraph tests they'll go through like several psychiatric evaluations and like their stories will be the same over and over and over again and doesn't change and like they they truly look like they fucking believe what happened to them which makes it interesting that maybe something did happen to them maybe it was aliens maybe it was the fucking cia and they picked them up and gave them lsd which is why they thought they saw what they saw you know um who knows but you were talking earlier about like you know when when so they were they were making this program to try to control people's minds using drugs right because they they already have these operations all over the world where they're bribing people to do what they want them to do and if the bribing doesn't work you know then they go to like you know blackmail right um, they were also thinking about using this as uh, a way to do sexual blackmail where they would send prostitutes out you know to give their you know their marks or their subjects, CIA um, uh, uh, LSD through 
their food or drinks and stuff like that. Um, and then once they're like high out of their mind, then they just, I guess, take pictures of them or something like that. They get compromise on them. So this is all part of that, um, that there, but, uh, kind of back to the, the, the good, I guess the good part of this particular story is that in 63, the, uh, CIA's IG, the inspector general, um, they, they found out that, that this program was being operated on by unwilling people, not willing people. And, uh, they shut it down. So they fucked up, they realized it, and then they shut it down. Not so exactly. You're not so you're not bringing up good things that they did. You're talking about things that were horrifying that they <laughs> had to put a stop to because it would it would right, completely the jeopardize like the you're reputation right. of the agency. Like you're talking about times when they got caught doing something fucked up beyond belief, and mm-hmm. then some department had found out like, oh shit, they're doing that. We need to put an end to that. Like this will ruin our fuck the credibility of this agency right. if we if someone finds out that we're kidnapping people and drugging them with LSD and foot for, right, that and one's then a terrible it, pictures it, okay. of them for sexual blackmail. <laughs> no, oh, they put a stop to that. Like okay, that one was admittedly some... a bad bad example. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to run down a couple of, of, of quick, random CIA achievements that are legitimately good, uh, that aren't as fucked up as the last one. But uh, I couldn't find too many of them, uh, obviously, uh, and definitely not from an in- intelligence standpoint. But um, there's a bunch of these side examples of things that they created, especially in the technology space, that benefit all of us. Uh, and many of these were technologies developed, of course, to increase their spying capabilities. But they founded PlayStation Three. <laughs> kind of. Uh, I'll get to that. Give me a second. <laughs> um, so uh, some of these are also just really weird. All right, I'll start with one that's not uh, probably a success per se, but it's badass. Um, and uh, it's the SR seven one Blackbird. So together with Lockheed Martin, the CIA developed the Blackbird. This was a replacement for their U two spy plane. Uh, you know, we I'm pretty sure we've done an entire episode on this. It's the fastest jet aircraft in the world. It reaches speeds of Mach 3.3. It's like 2,100 miles an hour. It's cra- It was crazy, crazy advanced for its time. Impactful and new technology. Um, and the, the program itself is now defunct. Like, we don't run Blackbirds anymore. But there was a lot of, like, advancements in aviation that was made by this plane that have been adopted to newer warplanes, but also commercial airliners. Uh... It was expensive as hell, but at least you can say we made the fastest flying, you know, plane ever. Go CIA. So that's one. Uh, here's another one. Did you know that the CIA invented lithium-ion batteries? Yeah, I did know that. So, yeah, they made this in order to, like, power their remote surveillance systems. And this is legit probably one of the best things they've done. Uh, because uh, in particular, you know... Lithium-ion batteries are used in so many of our devices today, phones, cars, you name it. Um, But one big unintended result was pacemakers. So the medical community snatched up the technology and started using lithium-ion batteries uh, to power their pacemakers because they lasted for like 10 years. And uh, they were easily able to show when the battery was dying so that you can put in a new one, you know, before the the person dies. Uh, And that's awesome. Pacemakers save a lot of lives. Um, and lithium-ion batteries are an amazing technology. Uh, you could really go after me and say, well, you know, now we're going after countries because we want their lithium and, like, it's bad for the environment. Yes, that is true. 
but um, it's kind of like saying it's kind of like saying, oh, World War One was great because it resulted in all these wonderful procedures and plastic surgery that have changed people's lives. Yeah, I mean, it's an unintended positive result for sure. Yeah, there's unintended positive results for everything, though. Well, not everything, but I think I think by in and of itself, this is one of the CIA's. Like, if you go to their their website, which I did, uh, and you know, look look at some of their achievements. This is the ones that they really are very proud of: uh, lithium ion batteries. And and we literally use lithium ion batteries for so many things, and they're going to be so crucial to our advancements in so many fields of study. Um, this is this is I think overall a net positive. And the reason why they invented it wasn't for like you know, to like subvert a government particularly. They just wanted to like use it to power remote cameras, you know? So there's that. Um, uh, another one, uh, so they were obviously heavily involved in, you know, satellite imagery because we wanted to spy on the, the Soviets. Um, but one unintended result of that was some of the technology used by the uh, agency for satellite image analysis ended up getting adopted by radiologists to improve the process for screening for breast cancer, so mammograms, which is awesome, uh, but obviously totally unintended. Um, so that, that technology did spur off uh, a pretty good result. Um, all right, this one's fun too. Um, the CIA uh, runs... Uh, a company, here's another front company I forgot to talk about. It's called uh, InQtel, and it's a strategic investment firm. And it funds companies working on technology that the agency thinks might be useful. So fun fact about this, the, the, the Q in the name InQtel, it refers to um, Q in... QAnon? Uh, no, not QAnon. <laughs> Although I'm sure some people have tried to make that connection. Uh, no, it refers to Q in James Bond. He's he's the you know the the inside guy who gives Bond all those dope gadgets. You know. Anyway, uh, they invested in a company called Keyhole, uh, and they were the startup behind Earth Viewer 3D, or as we know it today, Google Earth. Uh, so we got Google Earth pretty much directly from InQtel, which is CIA. So, congratulations! You can look at the Earth. Um, but this is a fun one. Speaking of PlayStation 3, uh, InQtel also invested in a company called Destineer. They're a gaming company, and and they originally were hoping that they can produce training simulators for the military. Um, and the, the company eventually went bust. But before they did that, they managed to squeeze out a few really dope titles like Age of Empires, Civilization 3, and Halo. They made Halo! So you can thank CIA for all the hours you spent getting wrecked by 12-year-olds in Halo. So there's that. Uh, all right, I got one last one for you. Did you know that the CIA has a film department? Um, yes, I did. Cool. Well, did you know that they work on TV shows and stuff like that that you probably have watched? So you know that one show... What shows, um, have, they, what shows have they made? You, you know Alias? Like for a long time ago, um, on ABC, I've heard of it. I've never, I've never watched Alias. I've never watched it either, but it was wildly popular. The CIA is responsible for Alias. Come on, they, no, they, they were. It was, it was produced with the assistance of the uh, CIA's film industry liaison, um, and they so were the, so what is, proud it, is of it. Alias just like a film about or show about how the CIA is awesome and yep. like, oh, the C- okay, yep. so it's just a, it's a propaganda show. It's a, it's a propaganda show, right? But it was wildly aimed popular. at the American public to be like, "Oh yeah, the CIA is great. Like right. they protect us from stuff. Right? And they made batteries once. 
Yep. They're great. Hold on a minute. Hold on. Is that every episode? The about making lithium batteries. This episode, we're going to do one about lithium batteries. (laughs) The next episode, we're going to do about the creation of lithium batteries. Episode four. We're going to justify torture, and then we're going to highlight the fact that we created lithium batteries. Well, they didn't torture anybody for lithium-ion batteries, to be clear. But. No, but they're, they're going to address torture and justify it, and then they're going to just remind people that they created lithium batteries. Oh, yeah, we batteries. made batteries. <laughs> this is one about dr- smuggling drugs from Nicaragua. <laughs> but we also invented lithium batteries. Oh, yeah, and we, we are don't we forget, should be we uh, attributed to the creation of Halo as well. Hey, you love Halo, don't you? You know, you know anyway. what? I don't. I don't love Halo. I'm a PlayStation person more than an X- Xbox person. All right, whatever, whatever. Such a pessimist. But I do like God. Halo. I played it before. It is fun. <laughs> but I'm more. I was never. I was more of a team uh, PlayStation than team uh, Xbox. Yep. Team the religious but, wars. But I want the religious wars. I want to talk a little bit more about, a a bit more about before Xbox. Xbox. So uh, Alias uh, was. Uh, done by J.J. Abrams. And this is what got his like major career kicked off. So after Alias, after his success at Alias, he used that show's success to do Lost, which is also wildly successful. And then he did the all those new Star Trek movies, which were also very successful. And by far the most successful thing he's done so far is Star Wars, The Force Awakens, which... Hang him. Which Hang him. He did Star Wars, highest... Force Awakens. Hang him. Hang him. Hey, man, it's Hang the third him. highest That's grossing That's film crime. of all time. That is the, okay. You're ending with the greatest crime the CIA has ever committed. You're saying that it's a direct the correlation Awakens. between the CIA and Star Wars The Force Awakens. That's right. There's that a thread film, there. That trilogy that was created is a crime against humanity. <laughs> it is an absolute crime against us all. Well, the fact I that they ruined <laughs> that entire franchise... By putting that horse shit, and they made three of them. They all are just treacle fan service bullshit with no story. It's like, hey, look at the Millennium Falcon. Oh, look, Chewie's still alive. They fucking suck. Boo, boo, boo this man. Boo this man. Well, the CIA made the new uh, Star Wars sequel, so you can thank them for that, or you can hate boo them for that. this man. They all. <laughs> <laughs> my buddy i have a buddy who's a big star wars fan and he's like such a weird star wars fan where he likes the prequels mm-hmm. i he do loves too loves the prequels and it's not that's a minority opinion mm-hmm. by the way yeah it is probably everyone shits on the prequels i'm kind of like i enjoyed them because i saw them when i was a kid right you know what i mean so and that's why i do to too me. um i didn't have the critical analysis that i have when the new ones came out which I was just watching, they're like, this is just fucking fan service shit. Like, oh wow, the Millennium Falcon. That's, But there's no story. They just redid the story from the first one. There was no continuation of the saga. Uh, Alright. It turned into shitting on Star Wars. <laughs> well, I mean, Some we did once go like, on a 20 minute rant about the uh, exhaust, the thermal exhaust ports on the on the Death Star. So it's not totally off brand of us to go down a rabbit hole about Star Wars. So, uh, well, you know who's a big fan of Star Wars? Hmm. Scott Horton. Hmm. He's a big okay. Star Wars guy. And uh, I guess we'll end it like this. We'll end it with this. 
So, um, yeah, we met Scott Horton the other day at the debate in New York City against Bill Crystal, and I encourage everyone to watch that debate. It's oh, on yeah. the Internet, so just type in Scott Horton and uh, Bill Crystal debate, and uh, it is great, man. Um, Scott claims that he b- believes in, the, in the non-aggression principle as a libertarian, but he certainly violated its, the, the NAP the non-aggression principle in this yep. debate because yeah, he's he, pretty aggressive. <laughs> um, he uh, definitely uh, assaulted Bill Crystal verbally mm-hmm. on the debate. He definitely, it was awesome. It was great. Um, so, and it was also fun meeting Scott. He's a great guy um, in person. So um, you want to wrap this episode up? Yep. All right. So thank you everyone for listening to another episode of bro history. Hopefully this was a fun episode. Um, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support the show. Rating and reviewing the podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, um, if you are listening on anything else, just share it. Tell your friends. You can also support us on Patreon. Um, Patreon um, is a place to uh, patronize the show if you would like. <laughs> and you also get access to our Slack channel, and our Slack channel is a fun little community that we have where we shoot the shit, talk, share news stories. I love the Slack. Um, yeah, me it's too. like one of the first things I look at every single morning when I wake up to see what people are saying. And it's we have people from all around the world. I love that Slack. So um, if you want to talk to us and stuff like that, join the Slack, join our Patreon and our Slack. Um, anything else? Nope. I think that's all. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining, and we will see you next week, I think. All right. Peace. Peace.